He's invested $3.1 million across 17 companies. Today, our interview is with Tyler Tringus of Ernest Capital. But before all, the, all that investing, it all started in 2008 after he graduated college and got involved in the renewable energy sector. That led him to eventually launch his own company, which he wanted to go raise venture capital for. He pitched over 400 venture capitalists, and ultimately, after trying to build that company, it failed. It just couldn't get traction. So he shut it down, but in the process, followed his wife to San Francisco. And when she got a State Department job in Buenos Aires, they took that flight down there and Tyler built the original MVP for his new company called Stormapper on that flight. The company over the first 12 months went from nothing to $2,000 a month in revenue. He ultimately scaled this business, getting customers off Upwork, doing Shopify contracts, and grew it to $16,000 a month in revenue in 2016 before making the thing highly profitable. In fact, Tyler was taking over quarter million dollars out of the company as salary before he sold to Shore Swift Capital in 2017. The company was doing way more than 18K in MRR at that point. After the sale of SureSwift, he said, you know what? I want to build a better way, more options for founders. And that's when he put pen to paper for Ernest Capital in 2018. He raised that $3.1 million fund from over 40 individual investors, has deployed that capital over the past 12 to 20 months into about 17 companies at an average check size of $150,000, and is now looking at raising his next fund, which he's invented a brand new model for quarterly subscriptions. It more closely matches how you build a SaaS company. Makes sense. He's doing it in an interesting model, a 506C. Enjoy today's interview with Tyler Tringus. Hello, everyone. My guest today is Tyler Tringus. If the name sounds familiar, it's because he blogs like nobody blogs before. He's building a company called Earnest Capital today, but historically, he's always been a prolific writer about all of his startup adventures, starting with renewable energies out of college, then eventually got into his own bootstrapped startup, uh, which he ultimately shut down. And then another one called Stormapper started in 2012 and ultimately grew that before selling it. We'll jump into that story. Then got into a very hot space, which was Shopify for a couple of years before really going on all in on Ernest Capital today and another company he's still a builder behind the scenes, which I love called Maptia. We'll touch on all those things today. Tyler, are you ready to take us to the top? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So one of my one of my favorite sort of quotes in terms of reading your stuff and prepping for this, you say, you know, the new American dream is building, owning, and selling a software company. Tell me more about that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's um <laughs> Well, it really is. And, and I say the American dream, you know, it, it's a rhetorical device. Obviously, this is a global phenomenon. But, you know, the, the general idea of the American dream, right, the being successful, the white picket fence, all that sort of like just baseline level of success that, that many people aspire to, I think is really converging around the idea of running a you know, profitable, remote-friendly software or technology-enabled company that essentially you can run from anywhere in the world uh, and, you know, it, it makes money while you sleep and, you know, maybe one day you can sort of sell it for a life-changing amount of money or maybe you just, you know, run it for the rest of your life. But I think, you know, really that kind of entrepreneurship is is the American dream in a way that maybe a generation ago it might be very, you know... Um, very job driven, right? You know, become an attorney, become a successful doctor, that sort of thing. Not that those are not important anymore, but I think the, the core thing that a lot of people aspire to, and, and I found it through, through, through my writing and um, through Twitter and stuff like that is, is this, you know, running a, a successful online business, you know? Yep. And, and is this one of those things where it's just hyped and so everyone thinks they can do it? Or is it actually the new American dream? Can this actually be done by millions of people? Enough hard work, enough grit. You can build a profitable company that makes you know, enough salary so you can live on. 
I, yeah, that's a great question uh, and a great distinction. It, it, it is the American dream because I think it is also quite achievable, you know, w- with all of the caveats that it is, you know, harder for certain people than others. And, and it still takes a level of skill. And sometimes it takes a level of capital and a push to get there. Um, it is one of the most permissionless paths to success, I think, that exists right now. Um, you know, you don't necessarily need a degree. You don't need to go through a rigorous hiring process. You typically don't need a ton of capital at least to get started. A lot of times you can build it with what you can put on a credit card, you know, month by month. Um, You know, the on-ramp is one of the most accessible in the economy. And on the other side of the equation, the number of opportunities I think is, is just dramatically multiplying. So it's not the case that, you know, a handful of software companies are going to scoop up all of the opportunity. What we're seeing and something that I've written about is, is this, this new deployment age of software. Maybe we'll talk about that a bit later, but you know, that essentially now these kinds of companies are getting into every little nook and cranny of the economy. And there's so many, you know, opportunities that maybe are not, $10 $10 billion opportunities, but they're very viable ways to build a, a profitable, sustainable business mm-hmm. for folks. And let's not bury the lead. Before we jump into your backstory, to learn about all your creds, how you grinded yourself, how you got to the idea of Ernest, talk to us about where you are today. So I guess maybe the headline would be, what was the fund one size of Ernest and how many companies did you invest in in your first cohort? Yeah, we launched Ernest. Well, we literally like first pen to paper uh, or, or, you know, words on a pitch deck in August of 2018. Six months later, so February of last year, we launched uh, Ernest Fund One. Um, you know, candidly, it was really like a proof of concept fund. So it was about $3.1 million that we invested over 18 months. So it was essentially one company a month for 18 months. And we are just hitting the end of that. So we'll write our probably last two checks out of that. We've done 16 companies to date. Um, we'll write our last two checks, you know, over the next probably six weeks or so. Um, and then we'll move on to, to our second fund, which is, you know, basically in motion. And guys, if this is the first time you're learning about Tyler and Ernest, they're doing it in a very neat, interesting way. We'll actually dive into the term sheet, which he's made public later on in the show. But with that sort of open loop, Tyler, let's jump back into you graduating college. What did you study in college and why jump into renewable energy sector right after? Uh, I studied economics in college, um, and uh, well, I got into renewable energy. I, I mean, I was interested in it just academically. The energy markets, I think, are really fascinating, and um, I got sucked into a rabbit hole, as I'm sort of want to do um, at some point in college. And uh, you know, the the opportunity or the moment when one needs to stop focusing on uh, study abroad and, and start focusing on uh, internships kind of arrived. <laughs> so I started hopefully, thinking, hopefully okay. paid internships, right? Yeah. Well, p- poorly paid yeah. um, <laughs> is how it worked out. But um, yeah, I ended up just stumbling upon, I, I kind of combined the two. I did this um, study abroad I- internship program in college. Um, the University of Florida where I went had this kind of thing where you could go to London and you could take an internship and, um, and, and, and you could take classes. And I just sort of loaded up and took like all credits of internship. So I basically just worked full time and, and got to keep my scholarship money. Um, and so I was in London and I found this, this, you know, startup consultancy called new energy finance. They were like 20 to 30 people in London. Um, and they were, you can think of them as like a, like a pure play, like McKenzie, you know, doing advisory services and data and all that sort of stuff, but totally focused on, at the time, the like 
really young but really rapidly growing clean tech market. So wind, solar, biofuels, carbon markets, that sort of thing. Um, I just got an internship there, which turned out to be like my last ever job application of any sort. Do you remember um, what you were paid? Do you remember what you were paid? Yeah, it was well, it, yeah, I mean, um, it, it was uh, questionable. It was one of those things where it was in the time period where it was still okay to sort of have the idea of an unpaid internship as a decent-sized <laughs> company. Literally a couple of years later, there was a sort of crackdown on that. And um, like in retrospect, it was probably not like 100%. Uh, Let's say I asked the question. <laughs> I asked the question and Tyler's face goes, I know what it is, but I probably shouldn't show this because it's going to get the company in trouble because it was so low. It probably wouldn't meet today's standards for acceptable. The company has since been acquired by Bloomberg. And so I think everything is cool. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was like, it was basically lunch money. And I couldn't have done it basically, you know, where I was in life, uh, especially in London, which was incredibly expensive without the kind of hack of keeping my, my scholarship um, going for it. So that basically covered my cost of living. And I worked like effectively an unpaid internship, basically. Yeah. The company was acquired by Bloomberg. Did you stay with Bloomberg or did you leave? So, so I did the internship in London and then basically I, I came back to finish my last semester of school, sort of emailed them again. I was like, that was fun. Can I keep working remotely? They said, yeah, cool. Great. So then I was getting paid for my last semester and basically it was a no brainer when I finished school to work for them. We had already been working together and they were just like, do you want to do this full time? And I said, great. Um, and they were just um, opening up in the US. So they had like two people in New York and two people in DC. And I went to go join the team in, in DC there. And so that was pretty cool. It was kind of like real true startup, you know, experience, although they were a little further along as a company. It was, you know, growing from three people to seven people to 15 people kind of thing in that, in that space. Um, I stayed with them for a while. I worked in for another two years, um, at the startup. So I worked a year in DC and a year in New York, and then they were acquired by Bloomberg. And then I moved to London and continued working in for about another 18 months. Um, and what, what year was that? When, what year did you graduate? Uh, I graduated in 08. So okay. and worked with them until 2010. Yeah, late 2010 is when I started to, uh, maybe early 2011. Yeah, late 2010 to early 2011 is when I, I quit um, and started, decided basically that I wanted to, uh, to be an entrepreneur. Um, you know, it was really my first foray into real entrepreneurship. Um, essentially, I just, I saw a market opportunity. So I, you know, I didn't come from a software background or anything like that, but I, one of the things I was doing there was um, a ton of, of modeling. So I, I wasn't a software developer, but I was doing, you know, Visual Basic and massive Excel models and stuff like that. And I was running the, the forecasting group. And I essentially saw my own forecast and said, there's a really interesting opportunity here in the solar market, the residential solar market, where the whole industry is focused on bringing the capital costs down, bringing down the cost of the modules and the panels and all that sort of stuff. And they're doing a great job. And basically at a certain very near point, it's going to cross over to where the dominant cost is going to be soft costs, customer acquisition, you know, all of the transaction costs and verifying things and all that. And I didn't, we were extremely plugged into the industry and essentially nobody was thinking about that. And I said, okay, cool. This seems like a software problem. I think I can build software that will, you know, create efficiencies and help with customer acquisition. And so let's go after that. And so I kind of quit my job, started pulling that thread. Yeah. And then name of that company, what was SolarList? How did you get your first customer? Uh, 
our first customers, you know, to be honest, we, we struggled with monetization. Um, we got a couple like proof of concept customers, but um, the big problem with our whole plan was we, we, we executed really well on product. This was kind of like the, the era of like the lean startup had just been published, you know, like a lot of the stuff you heard in just 2012, 2011 timeframe. Yeah. 20, yeah. 2011, 2012. And so, you know, it was, pretty normal to be going to tech stars, 500 startups, YC with like a proof of concept and all that sort of stuff. So we built product. We built one of the, you know, now this is pretty common, but we built either the first or one of the first because, you know, I would literally like hired some PhD in, in Bulgaria to like write the, the code that translated some of the spatial ge- uh, geometry to Google Maps. But, but what we ended up building was this thing where you put in your address pulls it up on Google Maps. You can kind of draw your own roof. And then we do a bunch of things to figure out how many panels could fit, what direction is it facing, what's the you know solar insulation in that area. And we basically give you an instant quote. Um, prior to that, it was like people would have to come to your house before you would have any idea what switching to solar would cost. So we built that product. We started taking it around. We got some proof of concept like, oh yeah, we'll pay you, you know, a couple hundred bucks to use this. Or, you know, we did some trial like lead gen based stuff where we would pay, um, we, would, we would run some ads and then they would pay us, you know, 20, 30 bucks a lead kind of thing. And we pretty quickly determined that the right business model was uh, actually closing sales, which was a long sales cycle which meant we've decided we need to raise money. Um, and so that kind of set off a, a uh, experiment in early stage fundraising. We ended here, up pitching, here we go. We ended up pitching probably 400 VCs basically. In 400? The yeah, uh, we pitched everybody. Everybody you can possibly think of. Um, wow. Yeah, uh, like everybody that was famous in early stage venture, we literally pitched them. Um, what was the open it, loop that you used in the email or the intro to get them to say yes? Yeah. I mean, just getting 400 meetings is impressive. We had basically, I mean, well, so the meetings is maybe an overstatement. I mean, some of them just said no via email, but you know, the, ahead, the list it. of people um, was 400 and, and all of them were closed in some way or another. Um, you know, uh, well, I did everything, you know, I mean, so we were cold emailing. We had built an impressive product. Um, so I had taught myself to code. I had managed to also get a CTO um, to work uh, for me for a bit. And um, so we had built like, pretty cool product in a pretty interesting market. And so it wasn't that hard to get at least a bite on the other end of the hook. Um, And then, you know, what we found was two big problems. One was that um, although cleantech was interesting at the time, it was a particularly very bad time to be raising as a cleantech firm. It was right after uh, like Gondor at Kleiner had just lost like a humongous amount of money. It was Solyndra had just imploded. Like basically VCs had lost a ton of money in the hard tech stuff that, you know, to be fair, we were arguing, we were transitioning away towards software, but they had just lost so much money that there was a sort of herd mentality that like, yeah, we're not investing in clean tech right now. Mm -hmm. And the other problem was that I hadn't, I didn't know about like how power law worked and, and how venture really worked. I was just like, you know, I'm trying to build this great business. I'm pretty sure I could build a 50 or hundred million dollar business. There's software here. So let's do a deal, you know, and we weren't really optimizing for like billion dollar outcomes. And at the time I didn't know that that was like a kind of a deal breaker for a lot of VCs. So, um, yeah, we got a bunch of cool, like, I remember one time I was in, um, 
I was in Italy in New York, the kind of rooftop bar they have there, and I saw uh, Dave McClure, like clearly like on a date or something. And I just like walked over and I was like, hey, this is really shitty of me, I know, but like I just want to say like I have this cool company in clean tech. I'd love to pitch you. And, you know, kind of gave him the the elevator pitch right there. And he was like, Yeah, okay, email me, you know. Um but yeah, Did he reply to the email. Relentless. What's that? Did he reply to the email? Uh, I think I ended up kind of going back and forth with one of his partners at, at five hundred in New York and you know, it was sort of standard like kind of pass email. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so did no, you end up raising? Everything. Uh we raised like a uh, a fairly small like not really friends and family but like friends and professional friends round. Um so we raised I think like 3 or 400k that you know we kind of stupidly just put right back into products. We just we were just sort of optimizing for the idea that we would raise like 1 to 2 million bucks. Um to, to execute this business plan. You know, we had this really knew the market. My, my co-founder also, you know, deeply understood the market. Uh, we we're like, look, it's, it's probably the second longest sales cycle that exists outside of home buying, right? You know, it, it's a very lengthy transaction. It takes like three to six months to close. So of course we need capital to build a sales team to be able to, you know, compensate them in the interim. Um, and we just sort of, you know, failed to launch essentially as a, as a business. Um, although we built a bunch of cool product, but so like, yeah. what was the max revenue you did in any given month? We never did anything material. I think we did like two or three grand in a month, but it was yeah. all like consulting you know, projects and stuff. Yeah. 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 Okay. Uh, so we, yeah. yeah, you, you, what? We were just never optimizing for that. I didn't know about bootstrapping. I didn't know, you know, we just, we had sort of picked up this playbook that was like lean startup plus what we were reading from, you know, VCs, blogs and stuff like that. And we were like, we're optimizing for information and for our deck and for, you know, how we're going to raise. And, and then we were taking feedback from, from all the VCs, which I now know, you know, is a terrible thing to do. Don't ever listen to the feedback that VCs give you. It's mostly optimized for you to just leave them alone and, and refer other people to them. It's not real advice. Like mostly yep. don't take it. And, but we were like, Oh cool. Like they want to see these metrics and this traction and blah, blah, blah. So we would run all these experiments and stuff like that. And, and so we were just shooting for that instead of like building a sustainable business, um, which was in the end a, a sort of fatal flaw for it. You shut the business down in 2013 and then start spending the majority of your time on StoreMapper. Were you already working on StoreMapper on the side while you were building SolarList or no, you started uh, StoreMapper straight after uh, SolarList? Yeah, it was even before. Yeah, it was on the side. So essentially what happened was, you know, like I said, there was this maybe 18 month period where it was like we had a product, we had our pitch, we had everything and we were just like, we just need to fund this thing to get it off the ground. Um, and so the, the binding constraint for the business was like my personal runway, you know, I was living in New York, it's a very expensive place. And I had brought some savings with me and I was doing some side consulting. How old, Tyler, give us, this is, give us, give us context here. How old were you at this point? Uh, probably 23. And what was your, what were your all in living expenses in New York? Well, I mean, my rent was probably 1200, 1500 a month. Um, so, I mean, I was probably burning like three grand a month living very, very, you know, leanly. Um, 
but you know, it's, it's one of those things where often in like a catch 22 where, you know, some VCs say they want to meet you out in San Francisco. Okay. Do I go spend the money to fly out there and the hotel and the rental car and all that sort of stuff, you know, um, to take that chance or not, which I did, you know, I was like burning through frequent flyer miles to like fly my co-founder and I out to Palo Alto to go. And, you know, we had like a Y Combinator, but, you know, interview. And then we had other VCs who wanted to meet us. We were staying in this, like, we stayed in this thing called a hacker hostel, which was this like awful, awful hostel in Soma for like 50 bucks a night. Uh, just like a, you know, just dingy, disgusting place. Um, so yeah, I mean, we were just, we were trying to be scrappy, um, but at the same time, we we're just burning through cash, you know, for, for over two years. Um, and so eventually it was like I was basically running on fumes, running on credit cards, that sort of thing. And I started, I had learned enough code to sort of be dangerous. And so I was moonlighting. So I, I was like working maybe 20 hours a week um, on Upwork, just finding random gigs um, as a software developer, um, even though, you know, I would have other people who would build our actual product. Um, and uh, so I was doing that to just kind of extend my personal runway, you know, sort of thing. I would work 40 hours on SolarList, 20 hours on that, and that would maybe break even a little bit, but it was still kind of burning cash. And then I was sort of desperately looking for some sort of passive income, you know, so mostly so that I could keep working on SolarList. I was like, just give me something that's going to throw off two grand a month so that I can stay in the game. And um, that kind of prototyping search for something uh, is what led to StoreMapper. It was like I was working with Shopify clients you know, on an hourly basis, one of them asked me to, uh, to build a store locator app for them. Uh, and I thought, well, okay, this is so common. There must be, uh, there must be some plug and play version of this. And there really wasn't. So, um, I kind of experimented with the idea of, uh, of seeing if I could just, you know, productize that versus just kind of, uh, you know, doing it as client work. And I, I did. I, so I built the first version of Store Mapper on a, a single flight, <laughs> um, and it was. Are you talking like, like New York to Boston or New York to San Francisco flight? San Francisco to Buenos Aires, Argentina. Oh, okay, okay, there you go. <laughs> so it, was, it was a longer flight, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, this is a long story. This is actually, I, I the flight where I went down there. I, it ended up. It was like my first real date with um the woman who's now my wife but anyway what, what's um, her name uh ann yeah. so you met her in san francisco at the hacker hostel right no 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 we had <laughs> a bunch of mutual friends actually and so they had been trying to set us up and we had met once before um and then she she works for the state department so she was going down to argentina for a couple of weeks and she was like, hey, you know, like, you should come, ha, ha, ha. And, and uh, I was totally mobile and, you know, was still trying to do fundraising, still trying to do everything, but it could all be done from a laptop. I had a pile of freaking flyer miles. So I said, fine, I'll go there. It'll be cheap. You know, we'll go hang out. You know, sounds good. So then I had this time box period of time where I say, okay, I don't have a lot of time, but I think this is a good business idea. I'm going to try to build the leanest, most revenue-focused version of this that I possibly can built the just most terrible like barely does what it says on the tin kind of version of it and immediately sent it out to everyone i'd ever worked with in the e-commerce world said hey here's this product you know you, you drop it in you drop a little snippet in it makes a store locator you send me a spreadsheet i upload it for you you know that sort of thing uh it costs five bucks a month you know uh here's where you pay and lo and behold we had like five people sign up for it in a week um and so I'm, okay this is something here and started kind of pulling that thread um 
from there. Yeah. But it, and then so somewhere along the way, I actually built it up to where I was doing about a thousand dollars a month in revenue. Um, but it still wasn't enough to to sort of keep things going um, with SolarList, and so I eventually just had to wrap it up. Uh, I was there. I was like sixty thousand dollars in credit card debt. You know, basically essentially broke. Couldn't afford to live in New York anymore. And I just told my investors and my co-founders, I said, hey, look, I, I can't do this anymore. You know, um, We're going to have to wrap this up. And uh, left New York and uh, reduced my cost of living, focused on StoreMapper, which was working, as well as um, the, the freelance work I was doing as well still. Most investors, when they invest, they're really betting on you as a person. And they, you know, people, especially early stage, pivot all the time. There's tons of stories of founders that start off on one thing, they pivot to another, and they keep the same cap table to keep the investors on board. It sounds like you had a clean cut. You actually shut the business down, and your cap table then for StoreMapper was clean. You owned 100% of it. Is that accurate? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, Any pushback you know, there from folks going, hey, we believe in you. Why are you not giving us anything of this new thing? You're just going <laughs> to shut this down? No, no, no. My investors, I mean, they were very clean tech focused. They were professional investors for the most part. Um, and they totally understood like, hey, you know, we're, we're shutting down this business. Um, and yeah, nobody really wanted to even mention like, hey, give us a taste of this little side project. Because to be clear, it was not at all clear it was even a viable, you know, business, anything more than a, a little, you know, hobby widget thing, essentially. It was only a little bit later that I kind of discovered that, you know, there was enough meat on the bone there for it to be a real, um, a real business. So no, it was totally clean. I, I owned it. So San Francisco to Buenos Aires, you're going down there because Anne, uh, your wife today, uh, was with the State Department. You build StoreMapper on the plane. You get pricing up five bucks a month. He signs people up. On a keynote you gave on stage, I believe it was two or three years ago, uh, you said he had about 200 bucks in MRR pretty quickly, early 2013. And by the end of 2013, you had passed about 2K a month in MRR. Uh, that mm -hmm. then went on in late 2014 to $7,000 a month in MRR. And in mid 2016 to $18,000 in monthly recurring revenue, 1500 customers and a ridiculously high conversion from free to paid of north of 50% with also very low churn, less than 1%. Explain to me how you went from 2K per month, right? A couple months after your plane fight where you built it to three years later, 18,000 in MRR. Well, in part, it was just the full-time focus, right? So, so this is, you know, uh, we can foreshadow a little bit and come to it. But one of the things that we really try to focus on with Ernest is the value of being able to switch from the nights and weekends to, hey, I'm giving my full energy, the majority of my productive working hours towards this versus the leftover, you know, remainder, um, you know, when you're half exhausted and you already worked, you know, 10 hours that day. And so that was a big change, right? So when it went from zero to 2K, that was almost entirely when I was still working at least to some extent um, on SolarList. Uh, so, so it was like, I would literally say I have less than 10 hours per week to work on this. And so, you know, support tickets would just sit there. And I'm just like, I can't do this. I have to work on some product. So like, I'm just not going to answer these for maybe 10 days. And then I'll send a really, really apologetic note saying, hey, I'm so sorry. Like, it's fixed now. You know, here you go. Um, and so, so that was a big switch was that, okay, once I gave it my full-time energy, you know, within, within six months, it was a full-time salary for me. So that was kind of my goal. It's like, okay, if this makes sort of in the... Seventy, eighty thousand dollars a year kind of range. Um, I know this is something that I can somewhat indefinitely, right? For the foreseeable future, this can support me. Um, and so that was the goal. And and yeah, we got there in like well, I got there in like six months, essentially, mm -hmm. with just 
full-time energy of actually improving the product, actually thinking about marketing, you know, no, no real secret sauce there. Um, and uh, yeah, and then from there, I like I, you know, a lot of the things that, that I did are some of the things that I look for now. So, you know, really relentlessly focusing on really, really high um, conversions in the funnel. So I think, you know, a lot of the metrics that we see are often, um, from kind of venture funded startups just because they that that's where like all the the media ecosystem is i mean obviously you know this and, and you're maybe not so much part of that but but so much of it is focused there and so people say oh yeah i've got a great conversion rate of like six percent to me that's like a horrifically leaky bucket right you're a bootstrapper you don't have the time and energy to bring in thousands and thousands of customers you want 10 customers you want seven you know 10 free trials you want seven customers coming out the other side and you want to keep them forever um and so that was kind of my focus all along was being very very efficient um with you know capturing and converting customers versus kind of top of the funnel growth so i want to talk um, about that 50 percent conversion right here in a second but i i do also yeah. want to pull something out that i just i think you're not giving yourself credit for maybe because you were in the moment but i think it is such like i look for patterns when i talk to founders and one of in my opinion the most effective ways if you want to live that american dream that you've defined or you at least said hey this is where it's trending that believe in building owning and selling a software company a genius way today to start that is to do exactly what you did which is you don't have an idea but you want to have a software company, teach yourself some code, go on Upwork and Fiverr, pick up side jobs in a hot space. You chose Shopify, obviously smart choice there, but you can go find patterns like that today. Do custom code and listen to what these, con these businesses that are contracting for you are asking for. Build a little high utility tool for them and they become your embedded customers to start with. That pattern is, in my opinion, a great blueprint for anyone that wants to get into software. I totally agree. I think it's highly repeatable. I, I agree with um, like each element of that is is something that is kind of worth breaking down, right? It's it is about you know. So we were pretty early on Shopify. It, well, I was I was in the App Store. You know, when we launched Store Locator app, it was the first one. You know, in there, so we just got a hundred percent of the of the sort of traffic from that, and we were able to sort of pick. The, it back you were the first the, store, like the map, not the first Shopify app ever. The, the no, first no, 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 yeah, yeah. no. But, I mean, pretty early on, 2013, 2014, Yeah, yeah, they probably only launched the app store in like 2012 I'm, yeah. I'm not totally sure about that but i mean it was it was sparse you know and nowadays when you go and you type anything in you get you know 72 results yeah. um you know just being early onto a growing platform is is definitely um you know a, a viable strategy and then yeah i think just being able to deeply understand the customer base you know even through that period I was still in that period, let's say, you know, from 2K to 7K to something like that, I was still freelancing. Um, so I was still working probably 20 to 40 hours a week um, as a Shopify focused uh, Rails developer. So I was really, you know, getting constant feedback from client based and, and, you know, being able to bounce ideas off of them. It let me be able to, um, to pull more value into the product, right? So it started off as like a, hey, you know, this is a check the box. We know we need this, so let's just check the box. But then, you know, that feedback loop of talking to the customers and then thinking about product led us to, for example, a conclusion where, hey, actually, the analytics here are really valuable, right? Like when somebody is saying, you know, where can I buy your product near me in Portland, Oregon, and you're getting... 7,000 searches like that a month and the answer is nowhere. 
that's actually really actionable information. Like you should probably find distribution in Portland, Oregon, and 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 that should be surfaced and and you know something that you know a a marketing person can use you know in concert with other tools to look for opportunities and alerts should be notifying you that hey for some reason you're blowing up in Switzerland and you know you really should find a way to to actively market there and so. Yeah. We, we found those bits of value and pulled those into the product and then, you know, was able to really hugely increase the, the average revenue per customer by adding more and more value there. But it was mostly a feedback loop of, um, of talking to, to, you know, the customer base, essentially. And so help me understand how you thought about onboarding. Because again, you shared in this, in this talk to you on stage, 50% conversion rate from free trial to paid. So two questions there. What was the free trial? And how did you decide where to put the paywall uh, for, for people to sign up where you knew 50% would convert? Yeah, I mean, well, so the, it was a, I think it was a 14-day free trial with a credit card up front. So, you know, the, those are the, obviously, you know, for calibrating your metrics, some of those things um, matter quite a bit. Uh, so, so obviously putting the credit card up front. Um, yeah, and it, it uh, well, it may or may not be the right decision, right? But it certainly is going to make your free trial to paid conversion a, a higher number, right? Um, whether or not it, you know, uh, on net is is beneficial is something to be tested. But um, that that's definitely part of it, right? I, I don't know that we would have anywhere near that if we had an open free trial or we had a freemium plan or something like that. Um, but you know, I think. Um, I, I, I do think there's a, a huge amount of low-hanging fruit in, in the onboarding process for, for most products. Um, I think that a lot of times folks just, founders just kind of fail to just take a moment and empathize with your customer and think about, okay, what is the actual job to be done here at each of those stages of the process, you know, not like, what do you want them to do? Not what is your sort of, you know, product set up in such a way, but how do you really remove friction from every phase of that process? And, and so I was just relentless about um, automation and, and uh, clarity at each phase of the, of the onboarding process. So an example that I see all the time is like, you know, you have an empty state for, for a part of your app, right? Where it's, it's eventually going to be filled up with records and somebody comes on it during onboarding and it's just this empty list of rows. It's like, no, if it's empty, it's useless. So you should replace the empty list of rows with a video on how to fill this thing up, right? Like, you know, right now we obviously know that you have not successfully done the thing that puts data in here. So we should optimize for teaching you how to do that at this point in the process. You know, I think like, I mean, I have a big, post somewhere of like all these little nitpicks, but you know, people use bad error messages, right? It'll just be like you upload a CSV and it's just like CSV invalid. Like, come on. No, no, no. You need to write like a ton of logic in there to be yeah. like, look, it's obviously a .xls file. Like don't, don't upload those, upload these, you know, like, okay, this, you know, you didn't put the name column, like make it so that people actually can. And, and some, co- and some copy, right? Nice try Batman. Let's try this again. Your XLS file needs to be CSV or, you know. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, just generally like one of the things was integrating your help docs, your, uh, we use intercom, but any kind of, you know, in-app chat with actual milestones, right? So I would set up automation where it was like, okay, one of the key things would be you need to like upload a list of your stores. It doesn't do anything unless you put the data in here. Um, and so if five days go by and 
you haven't done that, we would just automatically send an in-app message and an email saying, hey, seems like you haven't done this yet. Here's various options. Here's how to do it. Here's how to book a time with me so I can tell you how to do it. You know, And here is how you can forward this to your you know, developer, your marketing person, so they can do it, right? And, um, you know, it's just usually a lot of low-hanging fruit. And how, how did you, was it an automatic conversion on the 14 days to the, to the paid trial since there you already have the credit card? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. What did you do? Because I think a lot of founders fall into this case. It is a scary moment when you do an analysis on your paid user base and you look at the activation metrics. So in your case, it was have they uploaded the CSV file yet? Mm-hmm. If you looked at all of your paid users, your fit, whatever, 1500 you had, and you saw that 300 of them have been paying for like four months, but have not uploaded the CSV and founders going to this flight or fight mode, they go, Oh my gosh, I don't want to email them. Cause then they might get scared and cancel, but like they're not getting any value. It's like a, a small credit card charge. They don't know about right now. What do you do? Do you re-engage or do you just let it go and hope it fixes? I, I don't know, I, but I think that is, um, I think that's a question of like, you know, uh, treating a symptom, not an underlying cause sort of thing. You know, we, n- I mean, my product never had that situation in part because it was so proactive at reaching out to you if you didn't hit the right milestones that it didn't allow you to just forget about it, right? You know, it was just still from the get-go, you know, like what I think that is a symptom of is bad onboarding, right? Because it means that somehow people fail to hit relative milestones and you didn't reach out to them in some sort of way. So I think it's, I don't really have a suggestion for what to do in that moment. I think the ethical thing to do is, is to, you know, email those customers, try to get them either, you know, to actually use the product or go ahead and cancel for them. Um, but, you know, I, I think it's something you, you can avoid um, upfront by actually having, you know, good automated onboarding. Yep, a great email to send to that cohort. If any of you guys are going, oh my gosh, I understand Tyler and Nathan are talking about right now. I have that cohort is to send an email with a subject line. We're kicking you off our platform. It will have a massively high open rate. <laughs> they will all re-engage and they will probably even laugh like Tyler just did, which is like it builds humor into your product. But you should, I, I like that. Totally agree with you, Tyler. So you did this so well. You had less than 1% monthly churn. What was like the activity that you measured on your paid cohorts week after week, month after month, where you knew if they did that one thing, they were very likely to keep paying? Well, so I mean, part of that is is a fundamental nature of this product. And it's something that I often tell um, uh, founders to to contemplate if they're sort of at the idea stage and and something we look for you know at the sort of investment process is these kinds of set it and forget it you know value creating products. I just think they inherently have much lower churn if it's a product that it's a you know project management tool that everyone on the team has to use daily and weekly and monthly. Just so many more touch points for people to decide. Okay, we use this all the time, so you know there's a lot of value in getting it something that's 10% better, right? Mm-hmm. You know, like, because we use this so, so much. So if something has an extra feature, it's worth it to switch or, you know, it's worth it to cancel if it's not working, working like totally perfectly. Um, there's definitely a category of products that once you set them up, they pretty much do their job without you having to interact with them a whole bunch. And, and this was one of those, right? So it was like, okay, once you install it, once you have done the complicated sync to your, you know, your backend system that up, you know, that updates every time you um, have a new location, it's installed on your website, your customers just use it, you know, it can just sit there and take 100,000 search queries a month and you don't have to touch anything. Yeah. Um, so that was a, a big part of it. It's just actually the product design was, was designed around something that's likely to, to produce low churn. Um, yeah. And, and I think, you know, once you, once you get there, 
it's so it's, it, that's why the relentless focus on sort of onboarding is so important with these kinds of products is that like once you get someone there you're good you know i mean the lifetime value just because of the absurdly low churn is just astronomical because it's just customers stick around forever um but yeah so you build this to call it 18 grand a month or about a 220 ish k arr run rate type of company uh you then ultimately sell to sure swift in 2017 which you should think about like micro private equity if you haven't heard of those guys before and you're listening but this this idea of selling was clearly bubbling in your brain much earlier than that because i believe in I think it was 2013, you posted in the New York City Ruby Meetup Group uh, a title, a blog post. It said, unsexy, profitable SaaS business for sale or partner. What was the thinking behind that post? Uh, I mean, this was when I was still running um, SolarList. So, ah. so it, yeah, and so I was sort of thinking it, it was still kind of hit or miss. You know, I mean, this is one of the problems of being in the middle of a sort of venture fundraising process is it's very binary. It's like you're not really making steady progress. You stay in the game and then you get there or you just never get there. And so this, I was in that, you know, that phase of uncertainty where I said, okay, this is, this is a thing. I think it may have had like 1500 a month in, in MRR. Like this is a thing someone would buy. And, you know, I would, I would put, you know, 25 grand in my pocket if somebody was willing to just like write the check and, and take this over. Um, so I, I put that post in, yeah, just, yeah, the New York Ruby meetup as like a random thing. I don't know, maybe these people will buy it from me. Um, got a huge amount of interest and, and, um, you know, probably had like 60 something people, you know, email me um, off of that because it, it meet up. I mean, it, it was to a meetup group, but it's actually public and, and indexed by Google. So it's yep. also searchable. So I had, you know, random people who weren't a part of that group um, find it and, and email me. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I guess I ran a process in the sense that I, I took some calls and mostly found that it was, you know, not, not worth my time to sell a lot of kind of vulture, uh, folks at that stage, they were like, yeah, you know, I'll give you 10 grand for it or something. It's like, uh, you know, it's not worth your time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, yeah I'll I, just keep it. You know? It's a very effective strategy though. Like this is also, in my opinion, a big difference between VC backed companies and bootstrapped companies. You know, when you are mentored by a board and VC and you talk about the exit conversation, it's always, um, you're never for sale. You want to be bought. You want it to be a strategic buyer so you can get a ridiculous valuation. But for a bootstrap founder doing anywhere between 10 and 100 grand a month in revenue, if you actually already have a blog where you blog about revenue growth or tweet about it, if you just say, uh, and especially if it's a good headline, like, like unsexy, profitable SaaS business for sale, you, you can actually get a, a, a lot of bids coming in. They will all be super low, but if you're good at generating a bidding war, you can get the LOIs, we'll talk about that in a second, up to a point where it's actually a very valuable offer for you to exit. So you did this in 2016, you went to MicroConf, which is put on by the, I think the Tiny Seed crew, and you met some folks. Walk us through MicroConf and then up to the acquisition in 2017. Yeah. So, I mean, to your point is exactly correct in the sense that um, through a combination of, yeah, like that meetup post and then along the way, I was sort of inspired by um, a lot of the founders who were kind of doing radical transparency, like Joel at Buffer and um, Josh at Metrics and some of the other folks who, who were publishing um, their revenue numbers and a lot of detail about building their business, you know, in 
in part, I think for me, I, I always have this really strong aversion to um, writing about how to make money on the internet because it's so easy for it to like leak into kind of scammy stuff that I was like, look, if I publish the numbers, they will give me exactly as much credibility as I, as I deserve, right? Like, you know, take this with the grain of salt that it's like, I've not built nothing, right? You know, I have built... A, a, a decent sized business, but I also haven't built a $20 million a year business. So that's the appropriate context for this conversation. And then I would write about what was working, what wasn't working strategies, that sort of stuff. And, and I felt like that, that went really well, but as a result, people would know, I say, Oh, Hey, you know, this is a, looks like now you're a 32 K MRR business, like, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so there was just a constant stream of, um, of, you know, soft bids, inquiries, that sort of stuff, you know, a handful every month of folks saying, yeah, if you ever want to sell, you know, like, talk to me. Um, and so I kept the list, you know, I basically would just say, no, no, like, you know, I'm not interested right now, but I would kind of note it down. Um, and then, yeah, I went to, I went to MicroConf and I met, um, I met, uh, Kevin from SureSwift and, you know, he sort of, so basically they have a business that is exactly this. They, they buy, you know, mature, um, profitable software businesses, and then they just own and operate them. So the founder is kind of hands off. And that was something I was kind of thinking about. I've been running it for about five years and, um, you know, it was paying me like a really nice salary, but, um, you know, I wasn't what, super What was the salary it was paying you? I mean, I was probably making about 250 a year um, yeah. after, after the team, right? And this was for something that was properly like four-hour work week to some extent for me. I mean, the last year that I owned the business, I, um, uh, I, I took a year off basically with, you know, with my um, then-girlfriend uh, and we traveled we just, I, I mean, we hiked Kilimanjaro. So I, I took like 12 days offline, you know, I was like, all right, team, like, I'll see you later, you know? Um, and we were basically just like all going all over the world. I, I was still definitely working like, you know, so we hiked Kilimanjaro, we went on safari and then I spent like three weeks in Cape Town, you know, actually working and doing stuff. But I mean, I was really down to averaging probably 10 hours a week sort of thing. Um, so your, ma your max expense that last week up to the sale, then like your average monthly expenses to run the company besides your salary. I mean, they had to be less than three, four K a month uh no we had like four folks who were more or less full-time so um okay yeah no i don't remember what the exact uh run rate was but how, how did well i guess what i'm asking is you when you just said you did 250 sort of after everything else that last year you're is that two hundred fifty thousand dollars in salary that year yeah uh okay wait so you must have grown much bigger than or a little bit bigger than 18k in mrr then Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't think I can say anything about the, what the final number was. I think I released it in a series of blog posts, but, um, yeah, but at the time we sold it, it was, yeah, it was a lot higher than that. Yeah. I was about to say, I'm going, wait, hold on. 18 grand in MRR is 220 grand in ARR. And he's saying you take 250 out of that and math yeah. doesn't work. Okay. Got no, it. No, no, it was, it was a lot. It was definitely a lot more than 18. Yeah. Got it. Um, so, uh, yeah, so we, I had a small team. I had, um, basically four folks who were full-time, fully distributed, you know, totally remote group, but yeah. So, so, you know, it was something that it was, I was in this kind of classic position of, you know, okay, do I try to really keep investing to grow this? Do I just let this kind of hang out and, and pay me a salary while I do other stuff? Um, or do I sell it? And, and so that was on my mind quite a bit when I met Kevin we had a beer and, and, you know, he was saying, look, this is what I do. I buy these kinds of businesses, you know, I would love to talk. Um, and so, 
kind of had the conversation with with Kevin, felt like it was getting real. And to your point about a bidding war, I you know I don't think I necessarily wanted to create a bidding war per se, but I do often tell folks in any kind of like high stakes negotiation like that, and this is not something I invented, like the, what is it, the um, next best uh, alternative or whatever, BATNA. BATNA, yeah. Yeah, like it's all basically investing as heavily as you can into your plan B is the best way to get the absolute best outcome out of your plan A. And so I was like, okay, well, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. So I basically blasted the whole crew, you know, all 70 or so people who'd made any kind of vaguely serious offer and said, hey, um, I'm vaguely serious about doing this. So, you know, if you if you want to chat, let's chat. And basically had a, a, a proper like funnel trying to get as many people as possible to the uh, to the same stage at the same time, right? Because you don't really get any value if someone is really interested, but they're still at the diligence, learning about it stage, and someone else has already made you a firm offer. So you have to stall them for three months while yep. this other person gets there. So you wanted to like, so I just, I took a, a process and basically T- got- Tighten that for me. So 70 emails sent, how many replies? Oh man, I, I have no idea. Um, I guess. I, I, ultimately- uh, I got probably a dozen okay. serious conversations um, that I felt like, you know, I mean, one of the good things was because I've been so transparent throughout the whole process, the diligence process was actually quite easy. It was just like, hey, look, I mean, you, you go read the blog post. Metrics. Yeah, look, yeah, read the blog post. Go look at bare metrics to see my live MRR, churn, ARPU, all that sort of stuff. And tell me else what, what else you need to know, you know. Um, so it wasn't super... Um, challenging in terms of deciding, you know, what, who to sort of engage in diligence with. Uh, was how many, how many LOIs from the 12 series conversations? Uh, I had, I had five people make a, a pretty serious, like what I felt like was a serious bid, uh, and three LOIs and, um, offered. And then ultimately we went with, uh, sure Swift. Yep. Okay. Before we jump into earnest, um, wrapping this up, there's other people that probably have their own version of a store mapper right now. And they're wondering, well, like what value do you get on this sort of thing? You can't share the actual sale price, but let's step away from your company for a second and just talk in general companies selling this size, right? So call it between, I'm going to make this up between 200 grand in ARR and a million in ARR that are sort of bootstrapped like this generally yeah. sell for a multiple where on e- on profit, where you can also add back the owner's salary. Once you do that, so you said you were making call it two fifty after everybody else. So add that back to profits. What sort of multiple should people be looking for on those earnings after their salaries are added back? Yeah, I hesitate to say because I feel like you would know this better than me. I mean, you have a better data set than than I do. What What do you think? I, I don't. You know, it all for me. It's uh, this is more art than science. So that's why I always yeah. ask the science question to see if there is a scientific result. I mean, you chose not to use a broker, right? I mean, FE International will say we charge fifteen percent. We'll run a process for you, and fifteen percent is expensive, but you should pay us fifteen percent because we're going to get you a fifteen percent higher price. That's the justification. Whether it's mm-hmm. real or not, who the heck knows? You didn't use a broker though, so you must have felt like you got a good multiple. Yeah, I. Um I, I, I kind of ran my process. And then one of the things I did very late in, in the stage of things, because, you know, you can run the process pretty far before you're actually signing any kind of legal documents that are binding in any sort of way. So I basically had LOIs and, and then I went to, uh, brokers and basically just said, Hey, you know, like 
can you, can you beat, beat it? Like, does it make, does it make <laughs> sense for me to engage you in a way that's going to be on net, you know, better for me? And, and they were like, you know, no, <laughs> you, should t- you should take one of those. Um, I, yeah, I can't, I don't know. I mean, my sense is, I think if you ask a bunch of people, they would say a number that's in the range of five times that is, is market. Uh, when a bunch of deals are being done publicly, uh, I feel like that number is going up and up over time. So I don't know where it sits right now because I'm super focused on like the early stage. I'm not really like doing deals or, or hanging out with folks to do it, but I think it's, it's, it's going quite a bit up from there. Um, but I, I don't, I don't really have my finger on the pulse right now, you know? So let, let's now fast forward. You sell that company, you travel the world for a bit. Then you start putting pen to paper in August of 2018 about this idea of, you know, you want to help more quote unquote store mapper personas and less quote unquote, uh, solar list, uh, kind of, kind of use cases. Right. So, so you came up with the idea of earnest you mm-hmm. raised, I think you said at the top of the show, 3.1 million for your first fund. Um, mm-hmm. was that most of your capital or how many LPs did you raise from? No, it was a bunch of LPs. I mean, it was some of it was my capital for sure, but um, we I think we had about forty total LPs. Yep. So, um, yeah, so you know, it, it was almost all just um, entrepreneurs. Uh, so we didn't have any anything really approximating institutional investors in there. Um, with the exception of I mean, they've been public about this. Uh, so SureSwift also invested in in our fund. Um, so it was a good transaction, obviously, by my company, and then they turned around and invested in our next thing. Um, but other than that, in terms of an entity, everything else was individuals. Um, and uh, yeah, so it was, you know, a normal um, kind of a amount of outside capital, basically. Yep. And walk us through the term sheet. So if someone's thinking today, okay, I'm, I'm learning about Tyler. I like this guy. I like how it, like his story. I want to go apply and try and get capital from him. Uh, what do the deals look like and who's the right kind of entrepreneur? Yeah. Um, well, so I'll, I'll take a, a little bit of a step back. So, so, you know, I was, I had told the company, I was kind of thinking about, you know, all along the way from blogging and things like that, I'd met a bunch of folks who were, um, you know, at various parts of that journey, a lot of them very aspirational, some of them early stage, a lot of the folks later stage sharing, you know, their kind of wisdom with me, um, and really noticed that, you know, these businesses, once they get to a certain point, you really can properly bootstrap them, right? You get to maybe 10, 15, 25, you know, it depends on your cost of living and all that sort of stuff. But somewhere in there, it becomes a business that you can keep, you know, growing through free cash flow. But there is still this classic early part of the process where, you know, 50, 100, 150, 200 grand will really, really get you over the hump, especially if you don't, you know, have a spouse who can cover your costs while you're um, kind of building or you don't happen to inherit a bunch of money or something like that. You know, this can be a material obstacle to starting a business. And so, but once you get to the other side, you know, you have these businesses that actually, you know, I mean, it's not just micro PE, like everybody everywhere is thinking about, wow, these are great businesses. I would love to buy them. I would love to build one. I would love to own one. You know, I would love to invest in one, but you've got to get over that hump to this sort of sustainably profitable, um, maybe not even profitable, just kind of, you know, growable through free cash flow kind of phase. And so that was the thing that I was thinking about. How can we how can we fund that? And, um, you know, 
sort of immediately ran into two principal problems. The first one is um, the actual kind of typical quiver of investing products for early stage startups just weren't aligned with, let's say someone who comes to me and says, hey, I want to build the next base camp or I want to build the next wild bit or something like that. I want to build a profitable, sustainable business. Um, you know, if I write you, you know, a check on a convertible note that is premised on the idea that at some point you're going to raise a series A and a series B and all that sort of stuff, and you don't do any of that stuff, but you build a really successful, profitable business, I don't really have a way to get my money back. So that was problem number one, was how do we design something that aligns us with these kinds of outcomes? Why is that though, Tyler? I mean, that is the reason that the traditional convertible notes have an interest rate. It's to disincentivize the entrepreneur from just letting that thing accumulate interest at 8% and to actually go out and do a price drive. Right, exactly. So, you know, it's just about alignment, right? I mean, there is, you're right in that there is a way for me to get my money back. It's by basically forcing an entrepreneur to do something they don't want to do, right? You know, if they never intend to raise an additional round of financing, most of the early stage instruments, convertible notes and safes really are orientated around the idea that you will raise another round. And if you don't raise another round, they either do stuff that's, you know, not great, like accumulate interest indefinitely, um, which can actually, depending on how they're structured, like a convertible note with an 8% interest rate, you know, if you invested that in, in Basecamp, maybe it work, might work out great for you because it's been 18 years of compounding interest and you actually own 70% of the company if they ever sell it. Um, Wait, why, not- is that, why is that, Tyler? You, you, you would pay, if you were Basecamp and you took a convertible note early, you would, you're living off great cash flow, you'd pay off the note and stop paying the interest. That that is fair. Yes, you could do that. Yeah. So so basically, it's it's not um, it's not mutually beneficial, right? I mean, the word I often use is alignment, right? Mm-hmm. So, so it's either a situation that's bad for the founder or it's a situation that's bad for me, right? Like if they pay it off, well, I only got eight percent interest on this actually fairly risky venture, right? And and you know, otherwise they end up you know in some middle ground where it's just accumulating interest rapidly and they don't have you know, 200 grand to pay off the note. So it's getting to be more and more and more of their company. And so they're forced to take a price round, right? It's just not, none of those are aligned to where the outcome is, you know, we're high-fiving with the founder, right? And so that was the, 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 the principal problem is like, how do we make it to where what you want to do your version of success is also our version of success. Does that so make sense? It does. So let's say the type of founder applying to you wants to build a great cash flow profitable $5 million AR business. That would be a great win for them. Small team, they travel the world, do whatever. Uh, they would want to pay you back that initial capital so that they are not continuing to pay essentially a form of interest rate or, or you define it a different way. It's essentially a founder salary and then anything above the founder salary that they pay out as a dividend to you. But it goes on indefinitely unless they prepay, correct? In uh, the structure that we use? In Ernest's structure, yeah. Ah, uh, I don't... Mm, I don't think so. Um, okay. So let me just describe what it is and then we'll, we'll recalibrate. So um, we just designed the shared earnings agreement and the way that it works is you can think of it essentially as like a baseline, one of these convertible instruments, right? So in the sense that we invest an amount of money up front, you can convert a percentage and say, okay, you know, we just to give numbers, that's hundred K and that means 10%. And um, you know, that, that's where you start. So there's and a so cap, there's a cap then on the instrument. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. There, there's a basic simple formula that says, okay, this converts at this amount. Yep. And um, it, yeah, we call it you know, valuation cap and, and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, 
And so, sorry, sure exactly. that, just, just to make that real, you'd say, Hey, here's a hundred grand and it's an evaluation cap of 5 million, which is equivalent to that's how you calculate what the equity is if it does convert. Right. Exactly. So, so that's a baseline. And that is the percentage of the company that we get. If you sell the company or if you raise a, another round, you know, you go on, you say, Hey, actually we're going to raise 2 million bucks and we're going to take a big swing at this. You know, okay. Ernest's ownership is going to convert into that percentage. Yep. There's a separate piece, which is called shared earnings, which says, Hey, if you get to a point where you are very profitable, right? So you are, and, and we define this with this term called founder earnings, which is, there's this classic problem where, you know, the company is profitable and then the founders basically decide how much they want to chop it up into a really nice salary for themselves versus dividends that they then share with their investors. We say, look, we don't want to get into a debate about what's salary and what's, uh, dividends because usually what how that plays out is you have a, a board level discussion about what is a fair salary and it's all just kind of silly. We just say lump it together. If it's above a certain threshold, then we are entitled to a piece of it. Whether you're paying that, you know, whether your accountant tells you it should be a seven hundred thousand dollar a year salary or hundred thousand dollar a year salary and six hundred K in dividends, you choose. <laughs> but but we do the same math and and we are entitled to a piece of that. As that piece comes back to us, there's a pretty simple formula that buys down our original percentage, right? So if we started at 10, as you're making those shared earnings payments, that percentage number is going down. Uh, it doesn't go to zero because then we're kind of like debt. Like, you know, we can eventually get totally bought out. And if we backed you with, you know, 100K and you turn out to be the next GitHub, um, we're going to be kind of sad <laughs> that we didn't get like a really solid return. But that's not your model zero. though, right? Isn't that see where you're, this is where I have so many questions about this. Your yeah. model is not to back the next GitHub. Your model it's is true. to the founder optionality. Yes, it's true. Yeah, absolutely. But um, from a, so optionality goes both ways is essentially the way it works, right? So, so if we are giving a ton of optionality to the founders to figure out a way to say, hey, you know, if you, if, you know, you want to invest or you want to sell this much of your company, but we're actually going to give you a mechanism to repurchase a significant portion of that. Um, then we also don't want to get like fully repurchased so that, you know, if the company turns out to be a wild success and GitHub is, is an exaggeration, right? It could even be um, a company that's worth, you know, a hundred million. Let's say, let's, million. let's use really, let's say Nathan Barry with ConvertKit went through and was an early yeah. earnest company. He is a candidate yeah. that would have paid this down to zero because it has, has built a great lifestyle business. that's highly profitable. Right. What you're saying is you can buy it down a lot, but not all the way. We want a little bit of the exactly. pie. What's exactly. The, what's the floor? One percent, half percent, five percent? It's usually reducible by two thirds. So, okay. so if we had written a check that entitled us to say 9% of ConvertKit, you know, Nathan absolutely would have, you know, paid us down to about 3% and we would be very happy to still have that 3% um, because they've been doing so well. That's, that's a great example of exactly what we were shooting for there. Yeah. So this is, so this is where I, uh, this is where I get stuck. So I tr always try and role play, like put my head in where your head was and where my head was at our first companies when we were bootstrapping, right? If I take earnest money early on and let's say it's a hundred K on a million dollar cap. So 10% of the company and you and I agree that Nathan, the average salary in Austin, Texas for a founder is 50 K. So that's my thing in the contract, 50 K and anything above that we, we split right accordingly wait, wait, waited. Um, if the company ends up doing better than I anticipated and is just printing money, um, I'm going to want to pay you off. I'm going to want to pay down that first, that two third percent. 
And then I'm like, I want that other 3% equity. I'm, we're going to want to pay it all off. However, you managing returns for the 40 LPs you mentioned, do not want that payoff to happen in that case, because you want as much equity as possible. And specifically, you've protected yourself with a specific term you publish called this prepayment term, which says from the site, the company may not prepay any of the amounts it's obligated to pay to the investor due under this agreement without the prior written consent of you, the investor. Why would yeah. you let a company that's taking off buy down your equities? But you would never let that happen in the takeoff case. We probably wouldn't. So, so to, to parse that term a bit, um, the, so there is this balance. We are, you know, we are taking a risk alongside the founder that you know, there's a version of this that works out suboptimally for us, right? We do back a ConvertKit or we back a GitHub. And initially we have you know, 10% and we get paid you know, 2x our money back and that buys us down you know, by two thirds. And that's a really bad trade for us, right? Because we would much rather have kept it up here, right? Um, and, and, and had the whole 10% of this, you know, massive company. Um, we take that risk essentially. So, so the founders are allowed to make that payment. They're not allowed to prepay in the sense of just dumping money at us. So what they can't do is just say, here's a check, 300 grand, boom, like we bought you down, right? And again, the reason for that is let's say they negotiate uh, an acquisition, right? And they know they're about to get acquired for a huge sum of money. Absolutely, they're going to go like write me the biggest check they possibly can and buy me down as much as possible. What they can do and what we cannot prevent is per the formula, if the business is profitable, right? If the founder earnings are generated and they are in the books, they are absolutely entitled to pay us the full amount. We get a percentage of that and they, we can't prevent them from paying us that, right? Mm -hmm. uh, even if we don't want them to. And, and that's just the agreement. It's like, look, if you build a profitable business, you, you are entitled to you know, make those payments back to us, which will reduce our interest and may or may not be like a, a bad trade for us in, in the long term. Um, oh, I misunderstood that. So, so if there are profits on the books that are coming in each month, you as the fund cannot prevent them from no. paying you back. The, oh, okay. I misunderstood that. Got it. Yeah. So you, this clause you put in your contract is specifically to avoid the scenario where they have an acquisition offer. They want to like juice their return, which by the way, any rational person will want to do unless they just really oh, yeah. like you and your best friends, right? And they want to give you an extra 7%. This term is to prevent that from happening. Yes. And, and so this I is the, the effect of, you know, one of the things we did from the get-go October of 2018, I published a draft term sheet of this, uh, put it on Hacker News, put it everywhere, left the comments open in the Google Docs and just got like a flood of people red teaming this thing like crazy. You know, what about this? What about that? What about this? Yeah, yeah. And one of the things they sort of rightfully pointed out was like, hey, you know, not only the scenario you just described, but if you had an acquisition offer lined up, you'd go get a loan, right? You'd exactly. go to a loan shark to get the money to pay me back as fast as possible. So you basically say, look, you know, you're entitled to pay us what the contract stipulates, but you cannot just shovel money at us unless we have, you know, a, a mutually agreeable sort of situation. And, and look, I mean, there's still ways we could get gamed there, right? There are yeah, information. Everyone move, they move all their contracts from MRR to ARR. They pull all the cash forward and then they, you know, they, they put it, yeah. stick it out. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. So let me just, I guess, the most telling, I think, point in terms of how you're thinking about your facility is, is how you answer this next question, which is, your fund returns, which ultimately the way that you build this vision is to be able to raise more money to support more entrepreneurs. So you have to get a good return on this first fund, a good story there, right? Do you yeah. think most of your returns will come from sort of cash flow payouts over a longer period of time or 
from these companies being bought two and three years in. So it's, so it's exit events. Yeah. I would say that um, if we're talking about, so one of the things is what lens are you using in terms of, because sometimes when people evaluate funds, they often use a blend of both like cash on cash, right? So how many dollars are coming? And then there's the actual like IRR, right? The ROI, the the percentage number um, and the time, the timing of the cash flows matters a ton there. So what I will say is if you're talking about DPI, you're talking about actual yep. cash dollars coming back to us. I think the majority of those cash dollars come from uh, exit events uh, okay. or at exit events, either the company sells, right? Or we at some point decide that we need to sell our interests, right? Because we've backed the next base camp. They're 16 years in. They have no intention of, of creating liquidity, um, but we need to get liquidity for our shareholders. There are people who will buy that interest from us, right? So combining those two together as quote unquote exit events, um, I, the majority of the dollars have to come from that. And, and they don't have to. I, I predict they will. And the main reason is the asymmetry, which is you can, you know, when you build a very profitable SaaS business, you start to get monthly, you know, inquiries for people who want to offer you a life-changing amount of money. And so to pay us a substantial amount of, of shared earnings, the kind of profit share piece, you have to build a very profitable company and you have to consistently decline those, you know, for quarter after quarter, maybe for year after year until you hit the, the max cap, because we do have a cap on the lifetime amount of shared earnings you can pay us. What's so, the cap typically? Um, it varies, but you could say it's like three to four X our money. And, and then if you pay that back, you never pay us another um, bit of profit share uh, ever. Um, and so, but, but you basically have to decline to sell, right, for that large period of time. And any time that you say, okay, no, actually, I'm going to sell, right? You know, there's that asymmetry. And then additionally, you have the other asymmetry, which is that you can build a very sellable business without generating substantial profits. You can be reinvesting into growth, you know. Um, and so, so there's just so many scenarios in which liquidity for us, in terms of cash coming back to us, comes in the form of some kind of exit. Um, and then, you know, far fewer if you just like game out the probabilities of substantial amounts of money coming um, by a profit share. So the way I think about it, but so then go back to the other question, which is thinking about cash on cash returns, you think about IRR. Our idea here is to be indifferent between shared earnings and exits because it is not guaranteed, but the idea is probably the profit share piece comes earlier, right? And then the exit probably comes much later. You know, you, maybe you start getting profit shares in year two, three, four, that sort of thing, depending on how they run their business. And maybe the exits come in year five, seven, ten, right? And so, if this works exactly according to plan, which you know, who knows? But but the way we sort of try to structure the fund is that we don't really care if the founder is slamming on the gas, reinvesting every dollar and trying to build enterprise value that they eventually, you know, turns into liquidity for us. Or if they are, you know, taking their foot off the gas and just deciding, hey, I put a ton of, you know, sweat equity into building this company. I want to pay myself a really, really nice salary for a couple of years here. And, and they're taking profits and we're sharing in those. Mm-hmm. Ideally, we should be indifferent between those two on an IRR basis, right? Because, you know, like fewer dollars, but faster can be the same from an ROI perspective as more dollars, you know, much later. Sorry if I'm dumbing it down, but I'm just trying to make no, sure. No, it's, just, it's not. Know. But, but the, the IRR game is a game that every ma- that is how every major traditional VC plays the game. Um, and you strike me as a guy that is not trying to play that game, but the way I, you just I, I don't know if it, I agree with that. 
the, it the is. IRR I mean, game is the, the IRR, IRR game, game. Every VC upsells yeah. like the, the model is get your best friend of the bigger VC firm with a bigger mother fund to mark yeah. up your thing and pitch a massive IRR return so you can go raise the next fund. So, so this is getting into the weeds a tiny bit, but you know, I, I guess we can get into weeds. Um, yeah, the IRR game, I think is mostly a game and uh, Chamath Payaptia has like an awesome, I think it was a tweet storm blog post, his, his uh, investor letter is great on this. So that's IRR from the perspective of markups, right? That's saying I put a hundred grand to this company, that hundred grand is now worth 500 grand because some other VC has come in and invested at a higher valuation. So you're taking a paper markup. What I'm talking about is cash IRR. I'm talking about an IRR of literal dollars coming well, that's out DPI, of the That's DPI, that's DPI, that would be DPI then. Dollars paid out. I mean, that's, that's, that, that is why those two terms exist, is one, in my opinion. When all the VC, like I'm an LP in a bunch of VC funds and I get two reports. One is the DPI and one is like the on-paper IRR. Yeah, that, that's a fair point, but IRR is a very, I mean, you, you know, there's a formula in Excel called equals IRR, right? So there's, there's IRR in the context of how VCs want to portray IRR and then there's just like, okay, like it's an internal rate of return. What it means is basically, you know, it's the ROI, assuming I can infinitely reinvest those cash flows into equally profitable um, ventures, right? It's, a, it's also like a basic finance term. And so that's what I mean. I, I don't mean IRR, I guess, in the sense of paper markets or just cash markups. I mean, like, if you assume that we have a ton more companies, we can continuously reinvest, then over time, and our, if our IRR is 20% and we're doing a good job of reinvesting the money that comes back, we should show a 20% you know, over time ROI. And so yeah. that's how I think about it. It's, it's basically just a way to do time value of money, right? Because yeah. 3x cash on cash, if it comes in two years versus 10, is not the same. That's correct. Yeah. So, so when you, I mean, you're about to fully deploy fund one, uh, you'll go out to your current 40 LPs and maybe try and bring in some other people as well and raise fund two so you can keep pushing this vision forward. What will you yeah. pitch as the IR performance of fund one? What will you say it is? Well, I mean, we can't say yet, right? It's only... 18 months in. Yeah, but let's say you're raising your next fund. You have to somehow point to some amount of success in order to go out and get that next fund done. Usually it's a DPI or IRR metric. Yeah, it's a good question. So this is something I, I, I wrote a memo and I share with my LPs about this, which is how, how do we measure our own performance? And it's actually quite challenging um, with what we're trying to do because you're right. As a, as a VC fund, um, you know, because the fundraising cycle is 12 to 18 months, I may not have any cash returns, but hopefully, you know, I've made some investments and they've been marked up by other VCs who come in at a higher valuation so I can quote unquote show that IRR um, right out of the gate. We can't do that because, I mean, we had one fund uh, that, that didn't have uh, follow-on financing, but most of them are not even shooting for that, right? They're, they're you know, we're supposed to be, I call it first check, last check, right? We, we like to write the first check and then, you know, their plan A is not to raise any more capital after that. So they're not really optimizing for that. So judging us on that doesn't make a lot of sense. The other thing is we're investing very early stage. And so using the kind of like, terminal value, like we were just talking about, if you exit to a private equity buyer, that sort of thing, also doesn't make a ton of sense in the short term because they're not optimizing for profitability. They just raise some cash. They're probably investing it in hiring and stuff like that. So, so they're probably not super profitable in the near term. So um, basically all we did was um, essentially try to create some metrics and use some benchmarks around revenue growth and, and try to just, you know, mark our companies according to that, right? We invested when they were at 3K MRR, now they're at 30K MRR. It's obviously worth more, <laughs> you know, our investment is worth more than it was when they were at 3K. 
it is actually a bit of an open question. Um, and I think the only solution here is going to be a lot more funds eventually creating benchmarks around it in the same way that you can you know, basically create benchmarks among competing funds or, or funds in the same asset class over time. Um, yeah. Well, like, let's just, I mean, let's, instead of like talking about the general market, I mean, let's just be specific, right? I'm a, I'm a massive fan. In fact, I have four new ones waiting for me right now of, of Yak, uh, which oh, yeah. is essentially like an audio version of Slack. Uh, they yeah. were one of your portfolio companies. I use it almost every day. It's very effective. Uh, Active yeah. Capital came in early this year in 2020 and, and Martin January uh, and led a $1.3 million round. I assume hopefully uh, at, a, at a cap or a markup more than what Ernest put money in earlier <laughs> on. Um, so yeah. two questions there. Do you, do you convert? Does your equity convert at that point? Or do you still hold? Do they still have your agreement in place? Yeah. Okay. So a uh, couple of points of clarification there. So first of all, although we are quite for, focused on using the shared earnings agreement that we designed to align us with this particular type of founder, we are not a, um, that is not why we were here, right? We are here to, to back founders that we feel like match up with our strategy, which we call funding for bootstrappers and that sort of thing. And what that means is that not 100% of our deals are on exactly this shared earnings agreement. If we okay. really want to do a deal, we will do a deal. It's probably a 90-10 split, um, but we will invest using other structures. You know, we're not completely dogmatic about it, although obviously we tend to have a strong preference there. So in that case, um, uh, we co-invested with, uh, with Betaworks and Boost VC, and, and so we used a more standard kind of uh, venture terms with, with Yak. And you just um, follow, you followed on there? Uh, or you yes. led? We followed. No, we followed. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, so Yak is a bit anomalous for us. Essentially, um, I think I can share this. Uh, so basically, you know, I wrote a post about um, remote tools for remote teams and why we were super interested in those kinds of products because, you know, Ernest is completely distributed. Our mentor group is distributed. Our mentor group is like 40 software CEOs. Most of their companies are distributed. So I was like, hey, we know this space. <laughs> we are a great place to beta test, to get the word out. Like if you are building something in this space, you should come talk to me. And I got introduced to the folks at Yak and uh, they were uh, pre-revenue at the time. You know, they, they run so friendly. It's an agency. This was kind of a, yep. you know, Skunkworks project for them. Had huge adoption as like a free open source kind of experiment, but was not a business yet. And I said, I love this. I completely want to invest as soon as you launch your, your paid product. Uh, and I can see some actual revenue traction, which is our model to invest, you know, post-revenue. Uh, and then, you know, they, they got term sheets, right? And so I said, okay, well, you know, we, we still love this. We want to invest. But nine times out of 10, we, we do not invest pre-revenue. We invest in a shared earnings agreement. And we don't look for, um, you know, follow-on venture rounds to mark up our investments. Yak is a uh, exception to like all of those, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, but that investment was out of the $3.1 million fund. It's the same vehicle. Yes. Yeah. Okay, got it. Yeah. So, so um, I want to be clear for everyone listening. We are now. I am now speculating, and everything we've talked about so far related to Yak is public. You can go see it on Crunchbase. They they've written about it. It's all public. Now I'm speculating. Uh, a company like Yak, where you didn't, you know, you did something different. You're 10 percent, and you put money in early, and then a firm like Active Capital does come in, and let's say it was at a higher valuation. Do, do you take that sort of increase in valuation and build that into how you think about? IRR growth, because that's even having another party come in and value it higher is better than you just saying it has more revenue. So it must be more valuable. 
Yeah, it is. Yeah, so for sure. Okay. Like when they come in, I mean, we, we, we take the paper markup, we make it clear what's paper, what's cash, you know, yep. and, and so, I mean, you know, it's very hard when you're trying to do something, you know, extremely new yep. to then fit into the right boxes for LPs. And so the way that I try to compensate for that is writing incredibly verbose memos where I basically attack the problem from seven different ways publicly with all, not publicly in this case, but, you know, transparently, um, and with the data being out there rather than just kind of coming and saying like, oh, look, yeah, you know, we, we have a, you know, 60%, blah, 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 you know, that sort of thing. Um, I just try to explain it and then say, interpret this as you will, <laughs> essentially. Yep. Um, yeah. Talk to me quickly about one second every day. That also looked like a co-investment. It was, this is interesting yep. that Indy was also involved. So one of my questions there was going to be, how on earth do your two term sheets work together? Because the models are very different. Does the founder have to pay both of them? Yeah, so same deal. So out of the first 16 investments that we have done, two of them have not been on a shared earnings agreement. I just hit the two. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, of so course. We, same deal. Uh, you know, I, I um, met the founder, Caesar. I love the product. Um, you know, it was not a um, pre-revenue bet, yep. you know, by any means. Um, you know, just awesome company. And it really checked all of our investment criteria. It was, they're much further along than our typical um, investment would be. So when folks often try to talk about us and NDVC, the way I usually describe it is there's kind of like a Venn diagram of, of stage size. And, and we kind of overlap like just a bit here in yep. the sense that we are very focused super early. We go up to like this kind of range up here and in DBC, I mean, you know, Bryce can speak for himself, but my interpretation is they're kind of more up here and they come down to just here. And there's this very small overlap, you know, where that fits both of our models. And, um, and, and that's kind of what I felt about this deal that it was, you know, a, a good overlap um, for both models. And so we just co-invested on, on uh, the NDVC terms. Member space also entered your program with fairly high revenue relative to the rest of the cohort. How'd you convince them to take your terms? Uh, how did I convince them? Um, I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, when we, well, I'll speak broadly a little bit for a minute here, which is that, you know, we definitely do offer at Ernest a, a real <laughs> abundant a bundled package, right? So there's there's capital, there is you know community, there's shared resources, and there's mentorship. And the the capital to me is much more the kind of glue that holds it all together, that keeps everyone aligned. It's one of the reasons why all of our mentors also have to be LPs in the fund. So they are actually like everybody is invested literally in the success of the the founders on this mission. And and that is what binds together the the shared resources, the community, the mentorship, all that sort of stuff. Um, and so what we often find is that most of the founders do have a specific use case for the money, right? And there's a couple of, of um, inflection points that at various stages along the way to growth. There's kind of, okay, I need this money to quit my job and go full-time or stop freelancing. So we write that check. Uh, it's, look, I need to um, make my first hire. I'm drowning in support tickets and all that sort of stuff. And we're just not growing just enough fast enough right now that we can get you know a support team and a QA engineer. So we want to do that now instead of in six months. And then there's, we're trying to bring on some pros 
right? There's like, hey, look, we're kind of break even right now. We have our minimum viable team. And now we need to hire a serious senior engineer. We need to hire a serious marketer. We need to hire somebody. And, you know, we're, we're getting above like the part-time junior folks and whatever. And we need to go Your out. Your first and- 100K salary offer. Exactly. And yeah. it's going to take us a while. And particularly, for example, if you're talking about something like marketing, where it's not just a salary, you also have to give them a budget to work with. Right. And so, so there's still this jump where it's like, we're profitable, we're good, you know, we can keep growing through revenue, but actually, we want to make these hires, we want to move to the next level. And then we still feel like we need some upfront capital to get that done. Right. And so, so member space was more in that third category of like they needed to bring on some pros and um, the capital was there. But I think, you know, if you ask them, uh, and uh, uh, Ward, the CEO, has talked about this publicly that like a huge part of their decision was just, you know, having feeling like they weren't going it alone, right? Feeling like they had a group of, of, you know, other founders, other mentors, the team, it's all that sort of stuff, you know, behind them, incentivized to, to work with them and, and solve problems. And I think, you know, when you pull the founders now in the portfolio, you say, how much do you value this, 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 and this, you know, the cash is like two, three, or four, right? Yeah. And, and what's always number one is like working with other founders and then the mentors are always up there and you know, all that sort of stuff. And most importantly, you're helping these folks grow, right? I mean, Riley from Hostify has publicly put on his Twitter profile screenshots of his bare metrics so you can see that yeah. they went from 2K start to 24K now. He loves you guys. He thinks it's a, a really special thing to be working with you. So there are so many success stories here. La- last question on this part of the fund. You say on the site sort of your average and averages are dangerous, but your pilot fund check size was 50 to 250,000 usually. And you've been deploying with an average uh, check size of about $150,000. You went a bit more aggressive with end crawl. I believe you were the only investor in the September 2019 round and put in 450 grand. Why so much? Why why concentration risk? Uh, That's not true. Um, We led a round with a bunch of angels. So So there were others um, there. Yeah. Yeah. So this is something that we actually see a decent number of opportunities. We've done it two or three times, but um, a lot of times what happens is founders have um, a bunch of like industry angels, right? So they're not professional technology investors. They're not even really active, you know, software angels, but they are in an industry. And in this case, it's B2B SaaS for the film industry. And so they're all kind of interested, but you know, when you start sending them, you know, whatever, like, uh, safes and you send them Brad Feld's blog and stuff like that, their kind of eyes glaze over and they don't know what any of this stuff means. And they're like, how do I get my money back? And, and they just don't get it. And then um, when they kind of read what we write, they're like, oh, this makes sense. I understand. This is how you back you know, real businesses and, and get a real return out of it. Um, and so what we have done and will continue to do is to lead rounds for these folks. So we just basically set the terms like a lead VC or something like that. We set the terms of, of the investment and then they all just follow. Uh, in this case, we did a, a syndicate on AngelList or you know, something like that. And that's hugely valuable because you essentially lead, you do the majority around and give them incredible power to go close another 10, 20, 30 little checks from a bunch of strategic folks. It's highly valuable yep. early stage. Yeah, very cool. Okay, let's switch last couple questions here and then we're going to wrap up. So switching to LP management, again, because the way that these new models take off is you come up with a new model and then you can make it work for the founders and you can also make it work for the capital. So on mm-hmm. the LP side, one of the, one of the things, so I know a lot of LPs, 
uh, in many, many funds. I know some LPs in NDVC as well. And one of the things they talk about is how important it is to try and use these instruments from a tax perspective and try and keep them as capital gains, right? The mm-hmm. capital gain tax rate for LPs is obviously way more favorable than the income tax rate, which is where dividends come into play. Your thesis and Bryce's thesis and many of these new instruments look like equity for more than the required time period, which is a year, the first year, right? So that their taxes cap gains. And you're pretty confident you're not going to start getting dividend checks until way after a year anyway. In fact, Bryce's term sheets, you specifically says the repayment period doesn't start until after 12 years. To me, this strikes me more as catering to something that the LPs would like from a tax perspective than something that is necessarily 100% aligned with founders. What are your thoughts there? Hmm. Uh, I have a couple sort of disparate thoughts. Um, so you know, first of all, yeah, I agree with the, you know, our perspective on this is this is an equity-like instrument. I think that equity and debt is is turning into more and more of a spectrum. You know, there's been, the problem has been that there's been such a clear bright line between equity and debt. It's this white space that a lot of folks are attacking. And so it's turning into more of a spectrum. Um, one of the, the, you know, big consequences of are you debt or are you equity or is the tax treatment, which is, you know, very, very different. Um, I definitely believe, and we structure our terms, you know, around the idea that this is equity risk. And so it should be treated, you know, in, in the same way. We, for example, we don't ever like strive to have any kind of covenants or any kind of, you know, way that we could, um, there's no deadline that you can miss for repayments, right? There's no way to default on us other than, you know, literally not pay, making a payment that was you know, sort of owed, but you know what I mean? Like you can't miss a payment, right? Because if the company's not profitable, you don't have the money to pay for it, then you you can't miss a payment. So you can't default. So we can never foreclose on you and that sort of stuff. So, so it's very much equity risk. And so we do believe that, you know, over time, um, this will continue to be categorized more and more as equity risk, which the tax code tends to reward with capital gains treatment. One of the things that I'm very straightforward with my LPs about is, hey, you know, doing something new entails tax risk, right? Like, I mean, a lot of just normal people don't know that like, there is no mechanism to go to the IRS and say, hey, I want to do this new thing. Here's exactly how it works. Can you please uh, tell There's me- There's your intercom chat area where I can ask a yeah, question. like, can you tell me how you're going to, uh, you know, treat these taxes? <laughs> there is no mechanism for that. Zero, none. Your options are, you basically go to very, very expensive tax attorneys or big five accounting firms. You pay through the nose for their sort of- opinion on what they think the IRS is going to do. You take your shot, you structure your deals, you start filing your taxes, you submit your tax return. And anytime in the next five to 10 years, the IRS can come back and say, mm, we disagree. Right. Yeah. And, and that's just a fundamental, like irreducible risk of trying to do anything new. And it's something I have to be very straightforward with my LPs. It's like, look, you know, we don't know how to like, there's no way for us to reduce this risk to zero. Um, we, you know, we have hired a tax attorneys to give us, you know, kind of guidance on where they think this will lay down. But, um, you know, this is something that actually in the energy industry where I started my career is a ton of experience with because there's just an amazing amount of tax complexity because of the way that renewable energy is incentivized with tax credits one of the first things I had to do in my job was to reverse engineer a bunch of really complicated financial structures called tax equity, where they try to take the tax benefits of the company and externalize them to a third party and all that sort of stuff. And the reality is, you know, 
your holy grail for stuff like that is you operate in an area of tax risk for roughly seven to 10 years. And then if you're really, really lucky, the IRS will finally say, here's our safe harbor guidelines, which say, yes, you may continue doing this. And if you would like to you know, get these, this tax treatment that we have been handing out, here's your sort of box that you need to sit in. But, but there's really no way to get that up front. Yep. Um, but you're, what you're saying is if you were controlling the IRS and you had a definitive say that you want this to be treated as equity, this is cap gains equity. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, we think it will, um, you know, there, there's definitely open questions around um, the exact nature of the, the profit sharing piece, right? Um, there's a whole spectrum. I think by the law right now, it's like, and I'm speculating here to your point earlier, but as long as it's longer than 12 months where it looks like just equity and there are no returns of, you know, DPI essentially on which would look like interest, then, then good to go. Yeah, with, with a million asterisks that, you know, I'm yeah. not a tax lawyer and ask your accountant and blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah, our opinion is this is equity risk. This is equity terms. Um, it is long term and it should be, you know, taxed and treated accordingly. Yeah. And just to make this really clear for anyone that just got super confused listening, right? If I'm an LP in Tyler's fund and he says, Nathan, congratulations, I've made you some money. Here's a hundred thousand dollar check. If that was a, if that comes in as a dividend because a founder has essentially paid back off the cash flow, as we talked about earlier, that would be taxed for me at something like 37 ish percent, right? For accredited investors that have wealth, it's going to be 37 ish percent. If that's taxed as cap gains, the cap cap gains tax is 20%. So that's the difference of Tyler, you know, is a hundred thousand dollar check. If it's cap gains, right? I'm getting 80,000. If it's taxes, dividend or income, I'm getting 60,000. It's a $20,000 Delta, which really impacts the returns of the profile. So this is a big question. Yeah. And it's an important delineation, I think, for a lot more reasons than just tax to do with risk and strategy and terms and all that sort of stuff, which is that there's a lot of innovation going on right now in different structures for how to provide capital to 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 companies, right? A lot of people calling it like, you know, VC alternatives and, and listing a whole bunch of them out. You, you've got to post as well, you know, and, and it's great because it's like, hey, founders, here's a bunch of cool stuff. But from the perspective of an LP or an investor, et cetera, these can be very different, right? When you contrast like something like ClearBank or Letter Capital, you know, these are debt and debt-like instruments that are, you know, have debt-like return profiles and debt-like tax treatment and all that sort of stuff, which is, I'm not even saying that's better or worse, right? I'm just saying like they are, very different um, at the end of the day, even if uh, from a founder perspective, they might be sort of just comparing and contrasting either of those. Um, they, they end up with very different outcomes from an LP perspective. Yeah, definitely. From an L- that, that is why though I'm asking all these questions because like when you look at a lighter capital term sheet, right, their repayment cap is going to be somewhere between 1.4 and 2x. Your mm-hmm. repayment cap is 3 to 4x. Now that being said, there's way more optionality with your term sheet because that 3 to 4x right. return can come way over time. And oh, by the way, it may never come until the exit happens 10 years from now. So you are more patient capital than what lighter capital would be. But their effective interest rate, if you tried to compare the and actually tried to figure out an interest rate on an, on a C, which is very difficult, by the way. But if you tried to compare, you could argue that if these facilities are paid off at the same point four or five years from now, that a seal is way more expensive than just taking straight debt, but less optionality. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's the that's the the, the principal trade off of the entire you know 
capital spectrum, right? From sort of corporate bonds to venture capital, right? I mean, you know, how expensive was the, you know, the check that went into Instagram, right? The, the effective APR on that has got to be 500,000% or something insane. But, yeah. you know, it, it's a matter of also, you know, it was 500K or whatever it was. And if they shut down the next year, they're going to write another 500K check, you know, but if they're a debt firm, it's like, look, your credit is toast. We're never backing you ever again, right? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's different terms, different strategies and all that sort of stuff. And, and, and that does boil down to, to a cost of capital that founders need to, um, need to consider. But, um, at a certain level, it becomes not apples to apples, essentially. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Let's before let's wrap up here. I want to give you a chance to talk about though your new model for your next fund. You're gonna you you've put up this great post quarterly subscriptions to funds. So I assume this is how you're raising your next fund. Give us the teaser on that, then we'll wrap up. Yeah. Basically, I mean, I, I sort of was thinking about. Well, the funny thing is, I'm constantly giving some of the um, the kind of bootstrapper gospel to our founders, right? Stuff like, um, hey, don't be over-reliant on one particular huge customer, right? You want to have a diversified customer base that, you know, just all pays you in small increments so you're never beholden to them or, you know, one customer defaulting can't, you know, kill your business. And I would say things like, you know, it's better to, to get to a break-even uh, level of operation rather than being dependent on raising, you know, more and more chunky rounds of capital to run your company, right? What you want to do is get your MRR up there. And then if you want to raise capital, like great, but don't be dependent on it, right? I'm saying all this stuff and then I'm running earnest capital in exactly the opposite way, right? You know, I'm taking the traditional fund structure, which is very much like a huge part of the process. It's getting an anchor investor or one or two huge investors to say, yep, we're in. They make up the bulk of it. If they back out at the last second, you're totally screwed. It's absolutely disaster for you. Um, and at the same time, you know, you're raising these chunky funds for, you know, our first one was 18 months, but, um, you know, we were going the traditional idea of let's raise for three or four or five years because, you know, fundraising kind of sucks and it's not really fun. So I don't want to do it so often. So now I'm, I'm basically a venture back company and right? I'm basically going to raise my series A and now my series B and that's going to get me, you know, for the next couple of years. And that's going to set how I run this company. So this is not really how I want to run the company. And also, by the way, it's not really aligned with the folks that really want to back us. What we had was this sort of awesome flywheel of essentially entrepreneurs and angels and you know high net worth folks who deeply understood this industry who read our essays and are like, hey, this is really cool. Like, how do I get involved? You know, how do I support this? Uh, and we were sort of taking the traditional fundraising model and then saying, well, the way you do it is this way. And I know it doesn't make any sense for you, but this is how pension funds do it. So we're going to do it with you basically just said, okay, let's rethink this whole thing. How can we actually like run a fund that makes sense, that runs like the way I tell founders to run companies, um, and also, by the way, is much more aligned with actual entrepreneurs, like people, essentially, as, mm -hmm. as LPs. So the upshot is um, a quarterly subscription model. So the idea is, you know, instead of becoming and saying, we're doing a three-year fund. You need to put in 200 grand. We'll call that over you know, the next three years. You don't have to put a 200K check in the bank right now, but you don't know exactly when we're going to make those calls and you got to commit to the whole 200K up front right now. Um, we say, uh, actually, you know, you're going to commit to a quarterly amount we're going to call it, you know, at the beginning of each quarter uh, and you need to make a minimum four quarter commitment. Um, and then we also um, lowered our, our sort of minimum entry point to make it much more accessible to entrepreneur angels. Um, and then we also, 
you know, decided, because I'm talking about this right now, um, we decided to make the fund a 506C fund, which basically means we can talk about it publicly. So what that turns into is just a flywheel of bringing on more and more, um, uh, you know, essentially entrepreneurs, the folks that, that frankly we really like working with um, to, to continue backing the fund. And the last piece of the puzzle was we broke it down into sequential one-year funds and, and so what that means, so that combined with a couple other things means that we basically can accept new investors at any time. We do a quarterly call, you sign up for a four quarter commitment. And from here on out, literally any time, you know, I don't have to put any time pressure on my LPs, which was my least favorite part of fundraising. Uh, I just say, look, you know, if, if you're not ready now, we'll talk next quarter or we'll talk next year or whatever. But, you know, at any point you can just hop into the next quarter, um, join the fund, which has so far been really cool, actually. Yeah. If you make yeah. six months from now an investment in this killer company, you have unique access to deal flow and it takes off like three years later and everyone reads in TechCrunch that it has a massive exit. Aren't LPs going to be writing back going, wait, was I in the fund set cohort that got the investment in that killer company? Like how do you, that's why a lot of people do the fund structure is to make it really clear what companies those LPs have exposure to. It's one-year funds, right? So it's, you know, each year is a fund. And, and so it's pretty straightforward. You know, our investing pace is such that, you know, we've been doing a deal a month, we will do more. Um, and so, you know, one-year fund may still have, you know, 18, 20 companies in it. Um, and so that's a nice little portfolio. And, and, you know, if you invest during that period, you're, you're in that fund. What does it um, mean though? Like, so today, if, like if you closed your first tranche of quarterly sort of people today, and then I say, yeah. you know what, I'm not ready now. I don't have enough liquidity, but let me do, let me start in the next quarter. So yeah. people that start today have 12 months and then I start a quarter later and I have 12 months, but let's say you make an investment in month, uh, nine in month 13. So yeah. I would get it but your people that started before don't get it. Is that how that works? I'm not sure I totally understood the example, but it's, it's very clear cut. You, you sign up for a four quarter subscription has to be equal weighted, right? So if it's, you know, 10 K a quarter, it's gotta be 10 K a quarter. Can't be, you know, hundred now and then 10 for the next three. Um, and whatever fund is active at that time. So we're literally, we're, you know, this is happening. Like July 1st is our first quarter. So July 1st to July 1st is a fund. Every dollar that gets called over those four quarters goes into one fund and, and that's your allocation. So oh, you wait, so you're launching four funds every year, once a quarter. No, one fund every year. Yeah, it's a one-year fund, but there's four capital calls. That's it. That's okay, it. but if I, if I don't invest in this first quarter and I yeah. pick up next quarter. Yes. And I commit to four quarters. I'm now off your annual cycle. Yeah. So you'll have three commits that go into this fund and one uh -huh. that goes into the next fund. They just automatically oh, year see. after year. Yeah. I and so see. it does create an incentive to want to get in early, right? If you believe, because you, you have to do an equal weighted four quarter commit. So if you wait till the fourth quarter of the fund, you can't just dump a ton of money in, right? Well, between, between you and I, as an LP who wants an index... I actually would avoid being only in one fund. I would purposely invest the, over the bridge so I get half my money in one fund and half in another because then I'm exposed to more companies. There's less risk. 
Yeah, you you could do that, or you could just do a. I mean, depends on you know if you're hitting up against our like minimum investment, which is we're it's five k a quarter, so it's pretty low. Yeah. Um, for for most accredited investors, like you would just spread it out over the two two year funds. Um, Got it. But yeah, if you if you want to do it mid site, I mean, fine. You know, the the whole point is to give more flexibility and optionality to to investors because we're basically treating them with the traditional model like professional capital allocators, yeah. whose job it is is to take you know, a billion dollars and allocate it out and they make a three-year or five-year commitment, awesome, job done. And then it's somebody else's problem to like provide the liquidity and cash flow management, all that sort of stuff. Entrepreneurs are like, you know, I've got money now, but like, what if I have twins and want to buy a house a year from now, right? Like that may meaningfully change my capacity to commit to that. So we want to give them the optionality to say, that's fine. If you, you know, every year you commit to four quarters and every four quarters you have the capacity to, you know, up, down or zero your, your, your ongoing commitment essentially. So it's a lot more just like a, it's, it's SaaS basically. Yep. It's a subscription essentially. Tyler, if people want to learn more about this, where can they go? Uh, you can find me on Twitter, uh, at Tyler Tringus, um, earnestcapital.com, uh, earnest as in E-A-R-N, um, and, uh, or not.vc if that's easier to remember. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's where we're at. Guys, there you have it. We touched on all the way back since Tyler in 2008, getting into the energy sector, uh, then left the energy sector in 2011. Well, actually stayed in it, but launched his own company, SolarList, raised 400K into that product, learned about the downside of raising capital and said, you know what, this little side project I'm building, uh, which he built on a flight from San Francisco to Buenos Aires, ended up taking off in 2013, hit 2K in MRR. It was called Store Mapper, ultimately grew to way north of $18,000 per month in revenue to the point where Tyler was able to take out a quarter million a year in free cash flow, travel the world with his wife, live a great healthy, free life and ultimately sold that company in 2017 before jumping in and saying, I want to help more entrepreneurs do what I just did via Earnest Capital. He's inventing a new way to fund these companies through a seal. His first fund was 3.1 million bucks. They've invested in 16, about to be 17 companies. Uh, 40 LP supported him in that. He's about to raise a new fund on a new model that more closely matches the sort of subscription model. You can uh, submit every quarter and can you just support Earnest as a new asset class in the early stage B2B SaaS? space. Tyler, thanks for taking us to the top, man. That was an awesome summary. Amazing. <laughs> thanks so much for having me. <laughs>